HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Meet and Three is back. We're kicking off our fourth season and celebrating HRN's 10th anniversary with a very special episode about our home, Brooklyn. Roberta's was such an interesting place with such a strong gravitational pull and attracted all these different groups. The neighborhood has changed a lot over the past decade from its culinary renaissance to the complicated implications of gentrification. I would say the majority of the people who are members of our co-op definitely have a certain purchasing power, are mostly white, and we are trying to change that. We're taking you on a journey that spans the birthplace of food radio to buzzy neighborhood pollinators to the transformative health journey of our borough president. That was my moment of, you know, wow, someone has thrown me a life raft and I'm going to take it. Subscribe to Meet in 3, that's M-E-A-T plus sign T-H-R-E-E, available wherever you listen to podcasts. Hi, I'm Allie Kane. Welcome to In the Sauce, a podcast about building and growing consumer brands. When we launched a line of fresh sauces, I knew we were jumping into something crazy. Haven's Kitchen is a cooking school, cafe, and event space. A product that people buy in grocery stores is an entirely new business, and I had a lot to learn. So in my efforts to get myself educated, I started meeting everyone I know and respect who could advise me on production and distribution, sales and legal, PR, and social media. Then I started having those conversations here as a podcast so that other entrepreneurs can learn from them as well. This is the story of Haven's Kitchen Sauces, but it's also the story of every growing brand because we're all in the sauce. Today, I'm speaking with Agatha Kluke, co-founder of Kluke Farber, a boutique law firm that represents entrepreneurs, companies, investors, and creatives in a variety of industries, including consumer products, tech, and hospitality. Agatha advises on initial company formations. I love that I know what all these things are now. <laughs> now that you've I'm done reading it. this list and I'm like, uh-huh, check. Venture financing, mm-hmm. Employee equity incentives, yes. Contracts, uh-huh. And compliance matters, absolutely. And represents a number of brands we all know and love, including The Wing, Great Jones, Ramona, and Maud. Um, welcome, Agatha. 
Thank you. I'm delighted to be here. Happy to have you here. Um, I don't know how many of these episodes you've heard in the past, but before we get into all of the amazing advice that you're going to be able to give founders, I wanted to know a little bit about you. And I have, I don't know, uh, for some reason, I love hearing what people were like when they were little, because it really does tend to sort of translate into the career path that they end up choosing. So when you were little, were you like a, I'm going to be a lawyer, little girl? And were you like, what, what was your, what were what you was like? my thing? Yeah. yeah. What was your thing? So my mom reminded me that when I was in fifth grade, you had to write like in the fifth grade or like the high or fifth grade yearbook. Right. <laughs> you were like, what am I going to be when I'm 25? Uh-huh. And most people were like, I'm going to be a school teacher right. or I'm going to be a doctor. Right. I was like, I want to be on the Supreme Court. Awesome. So yeah. then, yeah. So then you definitely <laughs> always wanted to be a lawyer. So were you a, um, I think of kids that want to be lawyers as kind of loquacious and persistent. Um, were you extroverted or introverted? I was always pretty extroverted. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of people think of lawyers as being really argumentative. Um, I'm not I tend not to be very argumentative. I'm like, if any of my friends are hearing this, they may. <laughs> Actually, we have a live caller right now. Okay? Yeah. <laughs> Your boyfriend. Um, but I was introverted in the sense that I read a lot. I wrote a lot. Right. Um, I would write like sto- like creative stories. I would right. read articles and sort of write my like opinions about them. Wow. So from the get-go, um, I think I was sort of like practicing yeah. all of the legal skills. But I wasn't sort of the like law and order type. Right. I object. Yeah, Yeah. exactly. At the Thanksgiving dinner table. And were you, um, were, because going into, I think the kind of law and we'll follow your trajectory a little bit into like the brand stuff. This is different than criminal law or family law. Were you always into brands and things? Like, did you like the idea of companies and products or was that, it came later? Yes and no. Um, when I was in college, I worked at a media agency that did a lot of consumer brand work mm-hmm. um, in the health and wellness space. So, and I, I really loved our clients there. I got mm-hmm. to know them all really well. We worked with a lot of uh, huge media publications like Vogue and sort of every everyone under the Condé Nast umbrella. Mm-hmm. But during law school, I thought I wanted to be like a law and order criminal lawyer. Right. So I worked at the Manhattan DA's office oh, my fun. first my first summer of law school and very quickly realized that I just didn't have sort of the like the I don't know if it's even drive, but just it didn't really it, it is a really, really tough job. Yes. And you get so personally invested in your, you know, your clients and your matters. And it just was a little too much for me. Right. And so did you, so you pursued law college and then you knew you were going to law school. Mm -hmm. And then when do you have to decide, I'm assuming after that DA experience, you, you made a decision, but is it kind of like medical school where you say, okay, I'm going into orthopedics now? Like, do you have to make that decision kind of right after law school? You don't. So law school, it's three years. Uh And so your first summer, you kind of do whatever you want. The second summer, so I went to NYU Law, Mm -hmm. and they have a big on-campus recruiting event called OCI, and they bring all of the big law firms from New York. Mm -hmm. And so most people end up working at one of those, or New York and San Francisco, or wherever, you know, Chicago, wherever you want to practice. And so... 
most people tend to do big corporate law. So I actually ended up at a firm doing M&A work, mergers and acquisitions. Right, which is helpful. Yeah, which has been incredibly helpful. Probably the reason why I do so much transactional work right now is because I ended up uh, working for clients like Amazon and Goldman Sachs doing some of the biggest M&A deals. And so an M&A deal for an Amazon would be like an acquisition of a smaller company. Exactly, except it's like for a billion dollars. Right. Smaller <laughs> to them. Smaller to them. <laughs> right. Got it. Them, but okay. Yes, exactly. And so we call that strategic M&A right. in the sense that they're buying someone because they see some synergies together when right. they're together. Got it. I, yeah. I get that. Okay. And then, so you joined another firm when you graduated from law school and you were there for a while and then Did you go straight into founding your own? Like, how did that happen? So I wish I could say that it was straight into founding my own firm. (laughs) Yeah, because that would be unusual. Yeah, exactly, where I was like, I'm going to do this. Um, But after, I think, almost seven years of practicing, I was like, well, there's a couple of, there's only one place for me to really go at the firm, and that's to become a partner. Mm -hmm. And sort of partners at the firm were telling me that that's a possibility, but um, if they're listening right now, they're probably like, no, um, they're also on the line. Yeah. <laughs> calling Exactly. <laughs> but I was kind of like, I, I like what I'm doing, but I'm not really feeling super fulfilled. Right. And so a lot of my friends started working at venture funds or started starting companies. Mm-hmm. And so I thought, okay, let me work at a startup. Let me try to find an in-house job at a startup. But those are really hard yeah, to find. In-house jobs don't exist at startups because we don't have budgets for in-house counsel. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And so, and especially in New York, right. for a consumer company, there's probably five that have right. you know, more than five, obviously, but um five brands that I wanted to work for. Yes. So my view was, okay, I'm gonna leave and start um interviewing, maybe doing some legal work on the side. Mm-hmm. I had some former clients come. They were junior associates at private equity funds that then went to startups, asked me to start putting their companies together. Yeah, I mean, it's like a consultant lawyer. Yeah, exactly. Like do consulting agreements, a lot of stuff around this person won't pay me, Mm -hmm. Um, sort of small fry things compared to what I was doing. But it just felt, I felt like I was actually helping someone for the first time Mm -hmm. in a real way. And it wasn't just, okay, draft this contract overnight and we'll, you right. know, sort of. Did you feel like it just brought you kind of closer to the actual thing that was happening as opposed to sort of far away from it writing about it? Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you're working at on such large transactions, you're usually working with in-house counsel. And right. so you're taking directions from the top and just literally drafting them. Right. Whereas here I would have founders call me and be like, I'm about to go into a capital raising meeting mm-hmm. and I, I'm nervous because the last ones they sold me this, this and this. Right. And so you're actually advising yeah. on the fly. That's great. And, and what you, what I realized really quickly was people were like listening to me, which yes. sounds crazy as an attorney. Right. But a lot of times I felt at, at my old firm, um, you, it just gets lost in translation yeah. as it's sort of, well, you're a cog in the wheel to some extent, right? And now yeah. you get, it's, you know, I, I mean, I think that's a, I feel like people who work at large firms often make that transition because they want to be able to touch and really help and 
you know, get into the fun part again a little bit, even though it might not be as lucrative. Yeah, exactly. And I think the word that I always use is advise. I don't mm-hmm. feel like I was advising clients. I felt right. like I was closing transactions, which was really important for them. Right. But now I finally feel like clients come in, they have questions. I, I feel like I have a value add to their business, yeah. especially early on. Right. Um, and especially when a lot of, a lot of my clients have never even spoken to a lawyer before, so they don't even know what to ask me. And so that's actually really fulfilling when someone's like, I don't even know what I'm supposed to be doing. It's, I mean, it's almost like you could do a whole, to the extent that this podcast covers everything from like supply chain all the way through distribution and marketing and all the way to kind of, you know, marketing and branding. And you could literally have a legal parallel podcast for every single one of those pieces of this system. You know, I mean, we're mm-hmm. going to get into it because every single step of the way, there are legal questions. And most of the time, we don't even know what we don't know until, unfortunately, it's a little too late, which is kind of why I started doing this, because the goal for me is to get anyone I can to 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 reverse engineer so that they don't make some of the mistakes that people like you have seen. But you should have a podcast. (laughs) So how did you end up starting the firm? I mean, you were doing that on your own and then there is a Farber. There's a Farber. So about 18 months ago, I just was getting so much work Yeah, and I thought I would go in-house to one of my clients. But what I found was I was really enjoying doing the variety of work Mm -hmm. and just started to work with really, really great brands, started seeing them sort of go through their life cycle Hired my first employee about two years ago and then brought on my partner 18 months ago. So I do corporate stuff. So that's like contracts, transactional work. I don't litigate. If there's a dispute in the beginning, I would sort of help out. But it's a place I don't necessarily feel very comfortable. Right. Because you're not the law and order. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Exactly. That wasn't your thing as a kid. Exactly. So Sonia, she was a litigator at Double Voice Mm -hmm. and she sort of felt the kind of same feelings towards her career that I was, that I had felt a couple years before. Awesome. And I actually started talking to her about joining the firm probably two years before she ended up joining. Mm -hmm. And she was just like, I want to see what's going on. I want to see if this is a thing, but I was like, no, I'm really happy. And I'm, I I don't hate being a lawyer. So many of our friends hate what they do every day. And I'm like, you put so much time into it. How can you hate it? And so after two years, she came to me and we would have drinks every couple months and I'd be like, you're going to be my litigation partner. Right. And so December, I guess, of uh, 2017, she was like, I'm ready. I'm ready to do this. And it was just, yeah, it's been great since. That's amazing. Okay. Well, we're going to take a little break. And when we come back, I'm going to ask you about 30,000 questions that answer things that we don't even know we don't know. Perfect. We'll be right back. Hearst Ranch is a proud sponsor of the Heritage Radio Network. The Hearst family has been raising cattle on the rich, sustainable native grasslands of California's Central Coast for over 150 years. Piedra Blanca Rancho in San Simeon is the original Hearst Ranch, founded by George Hearst in 1865. George's son was the famous publisher, William Randolph Hearst. In addition to being known for building the iconic Hearst Castle, William was, like his father before him, an avid rancher. In his words, I would rather spend a month at the ranch than any place in the world. 
Thanks to one of the largest land conservation easements in California history, a joint effort with the California Rangeland Trust, the American Land Conservancy, and the state of California, the working landscape at Hearst Ranch will be preserved forever. Learn more about Hearst Ranch at hearstranch.com. Are you enjoying this podcast? Heritage Radio Network has plenty more. My name is Korsha Wilson, and I'm the host of A Hungry Society here on HRN. A Hungry Society focuses on highlighting dope people doing amazing work in food, and we talk about how we can make the culinary world a more diverse and inclusive space. You can join the conversation by checking out A Hungry Society wherever you listen to podcasts and on heritageradionetwork.org. Hi, I'm back with Agatha Kluk, co-founder of Kluk Farber, um, boutique law firm with a lot of really cool clients. And now we're going to get into, I feel like the last time I had an attorney on here, I was really very much at the beginning and very much sort of in like the, how do you set up? How do you, you know, hire people? How do you talk about equity agreements with your employees? Um, sort of like the trademarking stuff. And I do kind of want to touch on that because I, I think it, it bears repeating. But I also, I feel like now I'm at a little bit later stage and the fundraising piece and the equity piece and negotiating stuff um, is coming up more and more. And so I guess I'd love to hear just before we get into anything, if you've had the opportunity to think about just a couple of mistakes or the one big mistake or any mistakes that you see people when you meet them a couple of years in and you're like, oh, I wish mm-hmm. I told them, I wish I could have told them two years ago not to do this or to do this. Is there anything like glaring? There is. So the biggest one is entering into a partnership agreement or like a co-founder relationship really Mm, without documenting it somewhere. Yes. Because things are really good until things are not. not. Yep. And it's really difficult when you're not coming from sort of a, sort of like what we tend to call a prenup. Yeah. It's like a prenup. Yeah. Yeah. And so you're in this wild, wild west and it's very distracting from operating the business and we tend to represent the founder who's going to stay with the business. Right. And so there's a lot of stress involved with trying to sort of unwind something that was never, you know, documented through emails or texts. Right. So I think as uncomfortable as these conversations can be, I think it's really important to paper your relationship, yep. what your equity split's going to be, and what happens if someone leaves. It doesn't necessarily have to be framed from a it's a bad lever situation, but what happens if someone's spouse gets a job somewhere else and they have to move or their family situation changes and maybe framing it from those points will help you come up with a roadmap. Awesome. Is that the number one glaring thing? It's the, I think it's the most costly thing I've seen done incorrectly. You know, there's a lot of technical things people have done over the past. I'm, not filing 83B elections for stock has been a problem in the 83B past. 83B elections. I'm writing <laughs> this down. What is that? <laughs> so I, I think this will be the second thing that comes to us. Okay. Um, you actually, under Delaware law and for tax purposes, have to issue yourself stock and equity properly. So if you're a C-corporate stock, if it's an LLC, it's going to be a membership interest or a mm-hmm. partnership interest. 
And there's a way to document that. Just putting it on an Excel file doesn't necessarily (laughs) do that properly. And if you put vesting on your stock, you want to capture sort of the the low value of the stock at grant for tax purposes. So we file what's called an 83B election. And you have to do that 30 days within when the stock is properly granted. Um, and is I'll, that 30 days within like the formation of the company? It's or the what? proper granting. So okay. that's, it, it depends on, some people will go on to like LegalZoom or some of these tech platforms and grant themselves stock. Mm-hmm. And so, and I should pause here and say that none of this is actual legal advice. Right. <laughs> yes. It's just star asterisk. Star yes. asterisk, star asterisk. Um, <laughs> But when you properly grant it, and it depends on the state, what the state laws of the um, where your entity is formed, how you are properly granting equity, right. um, you need to file the 83B election from that date. Yeah, I mean, this goes back to the question of, you know, I mean, you can't, this is a hard thing for you to answer, but going onto a website about forming a company, mm-hmm. to me, is just... I'm too old for that, candidly. So it just seems like this is one of those areas where you call and you actually get real legal advice before you form the company, when you pick your name, before you invest any money in a logo, you want that like name yeah. trademarked. There are a couple of things that like you probably just shouldn't wing, right? I think that's exactly right. And so all I think a lot of clients, or a lot of clients, um, we're lucky that a lot of our clients come through referrals, and so they are brands that tend to go in capital raise, and so they've talked to friends and advisors who are like, the first step for you to be able to raise money is to set up an entity right. and actually do all of this properly, because otherwise you will not find any money right. from a, an institutional investor like a right. venture fund. But we do have a smaller set of client that um, does try to bootstrap and do it on their own. And I think if you find a startup law firm like ours, Mm -hmm. we do this all the time. We're not reworking the wheel. We have a flat fee that's very similar to the fees that you will find on these online tech platforms because our paralegal is doing most of the work and most of the filings. Right. So it's not, and our, our documents have been reviewed a hundred times by, you know, some of the biggest venture funds in New York and Silicon Valley. So we know that they're going to pass muster for when you do try to do your capital raise. Right. Um, so I would say that I know it's, I know people want to, to save as much money as they can at yeah. this process, but fixing it down the line can Is sometimes more be expensive. 10 times more expensive. Yeah. I mean, I've met people who've spent, I'm not kidding, hundreds of thousands mm-hmm. of dollars on branding, but don't own the logo, the logo. or the trademark. Yeah. Like it's, and I just don't understand why they would not focus on that part, you know? I mean, that's a hard one. So if they haven't done any diligence, that's on them. Yeah. But we oftentimes will have clients come to us and say, we love this name. And um, my partner does a lot of the IP work. So she'll Mm -hmm. do, and her paralegal will do a trademark search and we'll say, listen, this is what we found. We don't think it's a good idea. Right. But then they go ahead and do it anyway. Yeah. Cause they're so stuck on it. They love it. And the reality is, is it's very hard to find a clean name nowadays just because there's so many brands. But if you do, what you do need to understand is that if, 
you are go if one of the conflicting marks is owned by a bigger brand, they have the legal dollars to come after you. Right. And they most likely have someone in-house who their whole job is just to see if there's any marks that are issued that are conflicting with theirs. Yeah. Scary. Yeah. Okay. And then in terms of labels and what you can say on your label, I mean, I feel like there are specific firms that do like Mm -hmm. that and that they know all the FDA guidelines and stuff like that. But would you say, um, you know, just don't like, what's the general rule of thumb? Like don't put certain things on your package or, you know, for food. Yeah. So I think for food people, there's this trend to want to say we're organic, we are gluten-free, we are, and you have to be really, really careful about Mm -hmm. that because those things have, or sometimes have a very unspecific meaning under the law. So for example, like all natural. Yeah. And so what you don't want to be doing is putting labels on things when your ingredients are not sort of the, the the recipe for what that label is. Right. And so I think if you are going to allocate legal dollars in the beginning, getting an FDA expert is the place to to do that. Yep. Because what you don't want to do is have to recall your products. No. Right. So no, and also, you know, even forget about a recall, printing a new package. It, you know, because it's expensive because you have to order mm-hmm. so many, you know, I mean, we go back and forth with this a lot because we're getting the certifications we are gluten-free, we're not gluten-free certified. Mm-hmm. What do we say? You know, they're, you know, they're, it, and you see people putting all sorts of ridiculous <laughs> claims mm-hmm. on their things, you know? And so I think we've, I think, I think we're, we're good, but you know, um, it's just, it's interesting these days. You can't look at a package and you're kind of wondering like, really? Like, yeah. I, it, did someone think that this was, you know, but I guess they are just assuming they can go far with it and then eventually they'll have to change it. And by that time they'll have a brand that's yeah. big enough or well enough known. Exactly. And I think, you know, I'm, I would never say I'm an FDA expert, right? but these laws are essentially consumer protection statutes right. because your label really is just advertising at the end of the day. Yep. And so the same way that we have laws about what can and cannot be said on television right. to protect viewers, yeah. it's sort of the same thing. Absolutely. And I think when you're creating your label, you're creating your your brand identity, you may not be thinking of it that way, but it can be very misleading yeah. to someone. No, that makes a lot of sense. So I wanted to ask you about negotiating because I feel like... You have to negotiate with your distributor. You have mm-hmm. to negotiate with your freight guy. You have to negotiate with the buyers who want you to go on promo 18,000 times a year and you don't want to. Then you have to negotiate with people who want to, you know, buy mm-hmm. a, hopefully a part of your company. And it's, I, um, I am a little scared, candidly, mm-hmm. of negotiating. I think I've gotten a little more comfortable with it as I've started to see it more as a joint effort of two people trying to reach a A conclusion. Yeah. Rather than like I, a conflict of some Mm -hmm. sort. Um, But can you speak to sort of best negotiating techniques or things that you've seen founders in particular do that you think have been really smart? Sure. So I think negotiating is a skill set, skill set that is honed. Um, mm-hmm. When I was at my big firm, we took a lot of practice development classes in negotiating. 
And oh, with, yeah. what are, yeah, takeaways from that? I have a lot of takeaways. Awesome. Let's do it. Yeah. So the one thing is that there are several different types of negotiating styles. Okay. And so to give you examples, um, some people tend to be very aggressive. Mm-hmm. Some people take the view on negotiating that they're like, hey, hey, listen, I'm your friend. Let's like, let's strike a deal together. Mm-hmm. Some people take the sort of the framework of I'm the little guy. Just give me what I can get. Yep. And so the idea of being a good negotiator is understanding who the other party is mm-hmm. and using all of these kind of techniques and figuring out, well, how am I going to get the things that are important to me now? Right. And so one of the, one of the things um, we talked about is that as a young lawyer and women too, yep. when they're negotiating in the beginning, they tend to come from a place of fear. So yes. they tend to do... Uh, I, fall into two camps. One is like overly. Yeah. Or Mm -hmm. which I would do overly aggressive. Like they're like, there's a hard line and that's it. Yeah. And what I have learned as I've gone through is that, or sort of practiced for about 10 years at this point is that, you know, you can get what you want by being very conversational. You don't have to be overly friendly. You don't have to be overly aggressive, but you have to understand why you want what you want. Yeah. And when you're talking to a, a, someone on the other side, they're always sort of, they want something too. You're entering into sort of a, a commercial arrangement, right? Yeah. You're going to be business partners in some way. And so I found what's really effective is saying, well, I know that this is, this is really important for you, blah, 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 blah. So I'm willing to help you on these points. But mm-hmm. what's really important to me is X and that is because. And so the yep. because is really sort of the key part of that, yep. that strategy or that sentence um, I have to say that not it, that doesn't always work. No, not sometimes, if you're dealing with someone who just doesn't want to. Yeah, right. and so sometimes you have to resort to to being very aggressive. Right. But I think at least my my framework right now starts there, where it's like we're trying to enter into a business relationship. Let's trade points, and if I explain to you where I'm coming from, perhaps you'll come closer to where I need need you to be. And if taking that line of thought, if you are. Um, so in my case, let's say, well, it's hard to do my case. Okay. But let's say with, if, if you are a small company and you are raising equity and you're entering into negotiations with a VC fund or something like that, what are they, what is important to them? I mean, basically, how do you know what's important to them? I mean, clearly, they don't want the valuation to be crazy. Clearly, they want to make money on this investment. But other than that, is there anything to kind of know when you're talking to these funds, like what what they're looking for a little bit? It depends on the fund. So we right. actually had a client today go through a negotiation with a fund, and it was not going well. And their, their points were, we really want to have board control. Right. And so we want to be able to say no to all of these certain things. And so you kind of have to dial into that, right? Because you're like, well, we're founders. We created this product. They've already launched. Um, They've been bootstrapping. And they're like, we've been fairly successful without having someone say no to us on all these things. So Mm -hmm. why do we need your input? 
And so at and the end they of the, just want control so just, that these guys don't go rogue. Basically. Exactly. Right. And the thing is, at the end of the day, these founders made the decision to walk away from the term sheet because mm-hmm. they're like, this is very expensive money for us. Mm-hmm. We want to have operational control of our company. We don't want to enter into something early on that we can't then unwind down the road. Right. So I've seen some of those requirements are like the founder can't pay herself more than X. X right. Or, to me, that's like a gimme because we're not making that probably for a little while usually anyway. So I'm like, yeah, okay, that's one, you know, that's fine. But then a couple of them are, you can't make key hires Mm -hmm. without approval. That's a, that, that would be a problem, right? I mean, there, you have to kind of go through each one a little bit and just line by line and sort of see. And I think what sometimes you need to figure out is what's coming from their legal team because it's in their documents and Mm -hmm. what does the fund actually care about? Right. And so that's where I think a lawyer can be really helpful because they can say to you, so for this client, for example, we were like, these are, these are things we find in very late stage right. deals. Yes. This you guys, is not a seed investment or whatever exactly. right, requirement. And their lead investor was not even putting in close to half of the entire round. Right. So it just sort of the economics didn't make sense for the control they wanted. Gosh, that's such a bummer because they probably were pretty far down and they'd had other investors that were interested and then they just started barking up that tree. I would say one thing, just I'm always kind of, even with stores, this is just a little side note to those Mm -hmm. of you listening. Like we've gotten commitments from stores that have ended up being six months later than we actually had them on our calendar for verbal commitments, not written. Or, you know, I've heard this where venture funds, they go all the way down the road and then something doesn't happen. There really is like, it's not done until it's signed. Mm -hmm. It's just not. And so keep your options open. Keep, don't assume that, okay, I have that account, so I don't have to keep selling or, okay, this guy's going to invest, so I don't have to keep meeting people. Until it's like the money's in the bank or the PO is in the whatever. Yeah, exactly. Right? Like keep, your term sheet is signed. Yes. That's what I tell people. I don't want anyone to go too nuts because I definitely have clients that are like, oh my gosh, the term sheet signed, we have to get to docs right away yeah. and then needs to close by the end of the week. Like there is a little, there is a legal process that yes. needs to happen. In between the term sheet and the docs. Yeah. yeah, but I definitely agree. Until your term sheet is signed, that your company is fair game to you. So yeah. you can go shop it around. Do you have thoughts on valuation? I mean... So I've been kind of out there, you know, talking about it and people will say like, how'd you come up with that valuation? Right. And Mm -hmm. I don't know, you know, I mean, at my stage, it's not, you know, three times sales because that would be a little tiny valuation. Right. Mm -hmm. But, you know, there's like the brand in there and there's the, you know, potential in there. And, you Mm -hmm. know, and I keep kind of saying, well, people are coming out of the gate at, you know, a $4 million valuation pre-money. Um, by the way, just, I, I, I don't know if everyone understands pre-money and post-money, but Very important yes, differences. I do just want to say like, if you are, let's say you come up with a 2 million valuation pre-money and you're raising a million, then you are at a 3 million post-money valuation. That's that's the math. That's the math. That's all you need to yeah. know. Okay. Anyway, so going back, people are kind of without much to prove yet. I feel like 
the valuations are starting a little bit high these days. Mm-hmm. Do you have any thoughts about A, that, B, where it's going, C, any of the above? I think consumers are very attractive investment right now, right. just because there's so many consumer brands coming out of New York that are absolutely killing it. And, you know, a lot of them are female founded, which is really exciting yep. and getting the billion dollar plus right. valuations down the road. But at the end of the day, I think you, it, it valuation is both arbitrary, but also just math because mm-hmm. a lot of our early stage funds who are going to invest pre-launch are going to say, I will give you X amount of dollars, but I need to own 20% of your company. Right. And so that's just math based on how right. much they're willing to invest. And so it tends to come out to be about four to $6 million on a pre-money. Right. But after you've launched, you now have data. And so there's a number of different ways that people can value you. So it's based on like market. It could be based on EBITDA multiples when you're further down the road. Mm-hmm. Um, I think for you guys... T- taking sort of like potential market, right, right. and potential expansion, and then doing a, a, a assumption on EBITDA model, m- multiples right. would work. Yeah, but again, it's pretty it's pretty arbitrary, but also there is definitely sort of a market practice. Yes, and and what's the best way for a company to go about trying to find that valuation? Like, how who should they ask? You know, how many people should they interview? <laughs> like, yeah, you know. I think other founders who have done something similar, perhaps, mm-hmm. I don't know if very many people are open about what they've raised at. I think it's kind of like talking about your salary a little bit. Yeah. I wish people were more open. I'll be more open about it when I can be. Yeah, exactly. And then I think a law firm that does a lot of consumer can steer you in the right direction. Right. So we've definitely seen companies that have been undervalued. And then we've definitely seen companies where they get term sheets and I'm like, run with it and sign it today because it's great. (laughs) Yeah. But if you run with it and sign it and then you don't live up to whatever your projections are, aren't you sort of in danger of a down round the next time? You are. I guess when I, I guess my asterisks there would be no one's raising at a $20 million valuation. They're not so crazy. It's just sort of on the North end. Got it. So it's like eight instead of six or something. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think for the most part, our funds are being capitalized by a sort of a similar set of consumer product venture funds. Mm -hmm. And so those, they're not going to come out and say, well, we think you have, you know, the $20 million pre-launch company. Maybe you do. You see that more in tech and SaaS. Yeah. I mean, we what's SaaS? Um, software as services. Okay. Yeah. yeah. I think, I mean, DM me if I'm wrong, but for the most part, I think most of the people listening to this are in not just like CPG, but like food, you know, which is even it's harder, harder yeah. you know, especially fresh. I think our valuations are just a little lower and I hate to break it to the world, but it's unlikely that any of us are going to be billion dollar brands, maybe the beverages, but that, that, yeah. ha- that you have to have such high velocities to be a billion dollar food brand. I think the goal for a lot of us is to sort of get to somewhere in the 50 to a hundred million stage, which you is know? still and then, an incredible. Oh yeah. No, yeah. It's, it's no small shakes, no, but exactly. you know, and then sell for, you know, four X would be great. Well, and that's something that I tell a lot of our clients because you, you have to sort of stop reading TechCrunch and yes. stop reading the news about what these people have valued their companies at because right. you don't know how much they're raising. You don't know how diluted everybody is. Right. You don't know how much control they've given up. Yep. And perhaps 
you know, sometimes perhaps your, your goal is not to be grinding for the next 10 years because this venture fund needs you to grow a hundred X. Right. right. And so there's a different, there's different costs for money. Right. And so I think that's sort of a softer skill set to develop and ask yourself is, you know, what's the cost for this, this money that I'm getting? Yeah. And what is the funds expectation and my investors expectation? Yeah. Are they going to be breathing down my neck every year if I don't meet my projections yeah. or are they going to be providing strategic advice and guidance and, you know, h- helping open up doors that weren't open. Yeah. And those, those are, that's the type of money you want to go to. And it just may not be at the valuation that you necessarily want. Right. And it may not be sort of the, the sparkly venture mm-hmm. fund that you want, but I think that, yeah, I mean, it's funny because I have friends who have been just, you know, they've been stressed out about trying to raise the money. And then now I kind of talk to them and I expect them to feel better. And they don't because they've raised the money. But now they have these crazy numbers of doors they have to open and crazy velocities they have to reach. And and they're worried, you know, mm-hmm. because they've taken money and now they feel like they have to perform, perform in a way. Um, and that's not fun pressure. I don't think that that they're not having fun anymore, which is really sad, you know? Exactly. And I think, well, so one of our fun clients who I love, um, but the... Yeah. So when you represent the fund side, let's talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So it's obviously the flip side than the company. I, I love our fund clients. I think that they, I'm they are definitely more on the strategic side. They're trying to bring value to their portfolio right. companies Which in a way. Which is great. That's what you want. And so, and and the way they do that is in a variety of ways. Some of them have office space. Some of them are, you know, very CPG focused and can really, really make your network mm-hmm. shine. And they'll open up doors that were just not open to you before. Yep. They will provide a lot of feedback and guidance, spend a lot of time with you on your models and sort of, thoughts you have about new product lines mm-hmm. or whatever your questions may be. And at the end of the day, that's time out of their day, right? Yeah. And they want to see you succeed. Um, but the one of my, one of the GPs, when we close the the financing round, which usually is a lot of work on the founder's end too, and yes. pretty stressful, he always signs his emails, now let all the work begin. <laughs> and it's right. really true. It's right, like getting on the shelf at Whole Foods, like, eh, welcome, welcome to, to now to it's it. time to start. Right? Exactly. It's interesting. So have you ever, can you legally, are you, have you ever had a fun side and a founder or you no, can't? we can't do that. We're definitely conflicted right. out of that. I so think you can't take a founder... We can't take a founder client. We can't take a company client and then also represent the fund. Got it. So so what happens if you have a client, but then one of your funds wants to be the investor? It's happened. And what do so, you do? Um, it really depends on the situation. Mm-hmm. So we only have a couple of funds that will lead. And so oftentimes the non-lead investor will use another lawyer just to review the docs. Got it. Okay. It, if it's a lead investment, it really depends on the company because... You know, our investor relationships are are pretty deep. They do right. they do bring in a lot yeah, of other of course, business. I would imagine. Yes. Yeah. And so usually it's been pretty rare that the company comes before like the company usually comes after right. the investor. Right. And that so they'll say, We have a term sheet from X, Y, and Z and we'll say, Right, you know, sorry. Right. Um I know other some law firms will, when they're bigger, they will represent both sides. Right. And they can set up walls. But yeah. I'm not, 
yeah, I'm not sure if, if you necessarily want no. that kind of. Yes. Okay, before we get going, are there any indicators, you've seen a lot of companies at this point, are there any indicators of success that you feel like you can spot early on? When are you kind of like, oh, that's going to be a good one? It's actually the first conversation that I have with the founders. Interesting. What mm-hmm. is it in the conversation? We had a conversation. We did. And yeah. I was like, I think this is going to okay. be very successful. <laughs> and you're now in a Three Owls Market, which is right across yeah. the street from my apartment. I guess <laughs> That's so funny. A lot of details. Yeah. I kind of um, set you out. You couldn't be like, well, yeah, it wasn't yeah, a great conversation, so. but thanks for having me on the podcast. <laughs> so, yes. Yeah, so tell me. It's, And I think early stage investors, they invest in founding teams because your idea may be great, but the market may not necessarily be ready for it, or Mm -hmm. there may just be pressures on it that make you need to pivot or a number of different things. And I think a strong, really resilient founding team is going to get through all of these bumps. And it, it, I don't even know what, how to describe it, but it's sort of like a je ne sais quoi, I, I think Audrey, I spoke to Audrey Gelman from The Wing yeah. the first time, and it was Refresh Club at the time. Yep. They hadn't raised. And there was just something about it and talking to her where I was like, no matter what, this is going to be really, really successful. Yeah. yeah. So I think it's sort of like a, a grit to mm-hmm. the founder where yep. they're going to really, really make it work no matter what. But it, I don't know how to... <laughs> well, it's interesting, right? Because on one hand, we have to think that what we are doing is the most special thing on the planet, mm-hmm. right? Because it's it's such a slog that if we didn't, there'd be no point. But we also have to be kind of like open to feedback and open to, you know, we have to learn how to lead a team effectively and we have to be able to play well with others in the sandbox. Unless you're Elon Musk and I guess you can, you can yeah. do whatever you want. But I don't think many people that I know aspire to be that kind of, of a founder. No. Yeah. And I think what I really like about founders is when they know what they don't know. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so, and I think it takes confidence in yourself. It, yeah. it comes up a lot in the legal stuff where founders say, I don't know what I'm doing. Right. But that doesn't make me a bad CEO. Right. It's your job to tell right. me what I'm doing. Right. And that's very true. As opposed to sometimes founders will sort of pretend. Oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Like, I did this because I read it online and right. why would I not do it this way? And so that's, I guess, the answer to my red flag question. Like, are there, have you ever been like, oh, I'm not so sure we should be working with this founder? Yes. I think it's people who can't make decisions. Uh-huh. Interesting. And so I, because as the company grows, and I'm sure you're experiencing this, you will probably have to make hundreds of decisions a day. Yep. And that's not even a, an yep. exaggeration. Yep. And so we've had a lot of, or some clients go back and forth on all kinds of things. You know, name is important, but really you need to, at the end of the day, just choose something. Right. <laughs> Equity splits, um, you know, it, it, it runs the gamut on the yep. things they can't make decisions on. Yep. Hires, should we give this advisor equity or not? Do right. I want a board? Do I not want a board yep. with this investor? And it's kind of like, well, you need to make the decision. I'm here to help you, but right. we can't have 15 calls going back and forth. Yep. That's and great. That's super helpful. Yes, I really like that answer. Um, okay, two last questions because Matt's going to start making faces at me. <laughs> um, what do you wish that we all just knew at the beginning. Like what are, 
you know, I guess if you were going to go start, I mean, you did, right? You said you founded something, but if you were going to go start a CPG company tomorrow, what are like the key things that you just would make sure that you did that you don't want us to miss? I think coming up with your brand identity early on Mm -hmm. and sticking to it is really important because I've seen some clients think, well, I'm going to bootstrap this piece and, you know, I don't really care what my brand looks like. I I can change the messaging. I can change the social media. And I think that's true to a certain extent, but you really only have one opportunity Mm -hmm. in this market to kind of come out with a bang, come out with a bang. Mm -hmm. And so spending a lot more time, I think being a little more patient with that process and saying, who are we? Who do we want to be? Right. Yes, this can grow. But maybe we maybe we wait a little bit until we raise some money before we hire right. a branding agency. Yep. Or maybe I guess the answer would be being a little more patient yep. because you're so eager to get it out there. Mm-hmm. And and people are worried that someone else is gonna do it. And they will, but they're not gonna do it the way you know you, you're you gonna could. do yeah, it. Yeah, right? exactly. You can um, be more thoughtful about it. Got it. And okay, last question. The most fun that you've had doing this, like one moment where you're like, I love what I do. I think it's, I think it was the Wings DC opening because it was their second city outside of New York. Mm -hmm. And I've just been on that ride with them the whole time. And so seeing this expansion and saying like, oh wow, it goes beyond New York now. And people were so excited to be there. And I just felt like Our first office actually was with Audrey and Lauren in their HQ, so outside of the wing spaces. Right. And so I met the whole founding team and saw how quickly they grew and how they started hiring employees after they raised all their money. And so just seeing how passionate people were about the brand Mm -hmm. just made me really excited that I got to be a part of it. Yeah, exactly. That's so cool. Okay. How do people reach you if they need you? So <laughs> we have a website. Okay. I will spell my last name. It okay. is uh, www.klukfarber.com. Or you can try Googling Agatha Kluke, K-L-U-K, <laughs> and I'll probably be the only person that comes up. <laughs> okay. And there's no discount if you mention in the sauce, just to be clear. <laughs> But that would be cool. Maybe one day. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, Agatha, so much for being here. Um, Matt, thanks for, as always, being the best ever engineer. Uh, In two weeks from now, uh, we are hosting a live evening of In the Sauce, along with a couple of, um, I guess, two other very well-loved Heritage Radio Network podcasts. I am super psyched because I'm interviewing Jenny Britton Bauer from Jenny's Ice Cream live um, at Haven's Kitchen. You can go to, um, you know what, just go to my, like the Haven's Kitchen Instagram and in the link tree, there's a link to the Eventbrite. Um, it's supporting Heritage's 10 years of doing nonprofit radio. And I mean, it's Jenny. So how cool is that? So I hope to see you all there uh, in person. And thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to learn more about our 10-year anniversary celebration happening all year long, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. 
Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage radio network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the food world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you want to be part of the food world's most innovative community. Subscribe to the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the heart at the top right of our homepage. Thank you for listening.